Welcome back to 101, A Beginner's Guide to Life. We're going overseas today to interview Andrew Garrison, a full-time Japanese to English translator who also happens to be my brother. Andrew has been studying Japanese for over a decade. After getting a minor in Japanese at the University of North Texas, Andrew moved to Japan full-time where he taught English as a second language. He has passed multiple Japanese proficiency tests given by the Japanese government, and Andrew now works as a full-time translator for a software company in Nagasaki. All right, and today we get to hang out with the coolest thing about me and also my favorite brother, Andrew. Andrew, how's it going? It's good. I'm your only brother, so therefore I'm your least favorite brother as well. I wasn't going to say that, but it's fine. Andrew, <laughs> I'm really pumped just to get to talk to you. Obviously, said in the intro, but you are uh, in Japan, and especially with the current world we've lived in, have not gotten to see you like we wanted to. So I'm just glad we get to talk a little bit on here and just get to hang out, and that'll just be fun for me. So pumped to have you. How's it going? It's going pretty well. The time difference is a bit of a factor, but you know, it's a lazy Saturday evening. Yeah, it is an early Saturday morning for us. Normally we record <laughs> on Tuesdays for those at home wondering, and we made a special exception for this one to get Andrew on because we really want to just, just hang out with you anyway. But yeah, so totally worth an early Saturday to do this, but yeah. Yeah, no trouble at all. So obviously we're going to be talking a little bit about learning a foreign language, you are fluent in Japanese. I could say that with a lot of confidence. You live in Japan. I know you taught, I don't think you do anymore, but I know you taught Japanese as a second language, or sorry, English as a second language to Japanese speakers for a little while. But just tell us a little bit more about your whole process of learning Japanese. Yeah, definitely. So I started some self-study back in high school, which at this point is almost a decade ago, but <laughs> either way. And then when I started college back in 2010, I decided to do a minor in Japanese. And there were a lot of different reasons for that. I think one of them was that learning a language fluency had always been interesting to me, but I ran into the problem in elementary school and middle school learning Spanish. It was like, what am I, you know, I have no goals with this. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. And then in high school, I studied Italian for about three years. And that was kind of the same thing, that it was interesting. But the moment that I realized I didn't have anything I wanted to do with that skill, it stopped being interesting and I stopped putting in the effort. And so then when I got into college, I said, okay, I'm going to get fluent in a language. I want to get fluent in Japanese and I want to make sure that I'm using it for something specific. So I developed the idea that I wanted to do some, I wanted to work in Japan, whatever the capacity of that might've been. So I pushed through the minor and then based on the advice of a college professor, I applied to work as an assistant English teacher in Japan. And then upon a graduation, I moved over here. I did that for almost three years. And then I, I got a job at the uh, local company working in their R&D department, specifically as a Japanese to English translator. Okay. Yeah. So I think one of the most impressive things about that, Andrew, I feel like everyone talks about how they want to learn a language. I know you, you did minor it in college, but some backstory for our family because our mom's her degree in school was Spanish and she minored in French and she does not speak either of those things anymore. So I think even like studying in college is not necessarily going to go through life. So Andrew, I think it's really impressive that you basically by your own grit, I want to learn this language and you did. 
So how do you think your time learning it in school was helpful versus like when you moved over there, uh, learning the language in real time on the ground experience? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think a lot of people have the image of learning a language as if you aren't surrounded by it, it's not really going to stick. And honestly, I can say that for the most part, I agree with that sentiment. I think the most helpful thing that I was able to do was once I moved to Japan, be surrounded by the language constantly. You pick it up being in the midst of that for the entire time. But at the same time, I think that having the textbooks that I did and studying it in school I, as I did gave me a foundation that allowed me to build much more easily on top of that, as opposed to starting from the zero and then trying to just soak it all in. I've known a few people, I think, in my time here who had no skill in Japanese whatsoever when they came here. Sick burn. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to insult anybody at all. That's just how it is. Some people come over here with no skill in the language whatsoever, and they find it much more difficult to progress in their studying because they don't have anything to go off of. It's just input, 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 input all the time. And I think that at the very least, having the educational experience I did in the language allowed me to approach it at the beginner level from a more structured perspective and once I had that foundation from that structured perspective, then jumping into it from a more day-to-day -day natural situation made it much easier to learn new things and, you know, develop my skills. So you, you say the phrase beginner level after like literally having a college degree involving Japanese. <laughs> so at like what point do you feel like in the process were you when you got out of college with a minor Japanese? I was very good at responding to very specific things, I think is the best way to put that. If you gave me something I was familiar with, I could give back really easily. But once you start getting out of that comfort zone and moving into things, you know, vocabulary, conversations that I had no experience with or I wasn't familiar with at a comfortable level, that's when it became really difficult to respond effectively, to communicate effectively. And so, it's one of those things when you learn a language, I think everybody has this experience, but you learn those set phrases that are useful, but they're not very multi-use. You can't really slot them into a whole lot of different situations because they're a response to this one thing, or they're a question about this one thing. And so before I came over here, I was really good at that kind of structured give and take. But once you jumped out of that, it became much more difficult. Mm. So I have a random question on, on that little, you know, bit, but I'm just curious. So for context, Andrew's wife, Mickey, is Japanese and she speaks great English. Like it's really a great combination that he speaks Japanese and she speaks English so well. What do y'all speak in your home? We primarily speak in Japanese. We will speak in English occasionally. Recently, we've been doing it more often, just so one that she can practice and two, because it, we just switch back and forth, but... This is a little bit of a tangent, but I find that if you get into a relationship with somebody who does not speak the same native language that you do, you are from the get-go going to get into a habit of picking one of those two languages depending on the circumstances. And we from the get-go spoke in Japanese because I wanted to practice and we lived in Japan and it was just easier to do. And now we're in a situation where we very easily probably could 
communicate with each other in English from start to finish in a full day. But we're just already in the habit of speaking in Japanese. So any serious conversation that comes up, that's what we default to. So that's great. Also, tell her I said hi. Tell her I say <laughs> hi from hi from the States. I'll pass it along. Yeah. Yeah. So I would even love just for the fun of it to hear a little bit about your time in Japan. Obviously, I've gotten to hear about it. But for people who are listening, just like some of your experiences, some of the fun, what you do, like what you do for a living, just for context for people. Yeah, I think I said it uh, at the beginning, but I currently work for a local IT company, a web design company, and their R&D department specifically in translation and overseas business development. And it's it's pretty interesting, honestly. It, it's definitely not what I thought I would be doing if you asked me five years ago. But yeah, it's, it's a very unique way of looking at the world and making money. Yeah. What are some things about the culture over there that like are some of your favorite things and what were some things that took a lot of getting used to? That is a very good question indeed. My experience over the course of this has been realizing more and more so that there's this idea I see that, especially from Americans, but I think it applies to people from all over the world as well when it comes to viewing different countries, is that there's this cultural gap that exists that basically makes these two people groups let's just go with Americans and Japanese, that that gap is significantly difficult to cross. It, it, you have to deal with so many thought processes and cultural understandings that you just don't understand because they're not yours. I have mostly experienced over the course of this time that there are a lot more similarities than I think people realize. Yeah, there are major differences that exist, but I... In general, I've just found it's much easier to exist here, to live here, when you begin to realize that a lot of the thought processes are the same, they just result in different outcomes. I'm trying to think of a good example off the top of my head, but I think, you know, there's this idea, for example, that you're not supposed to compliment people here, that complimenting people is kind of a bad idea because, you know, everybody's supposed to be humble, and if you compliment someone, you put them in an awkward position, but I've... This is anecdotal because it's just my experience, but honestly, I have not found any situation where doing that kind of thing has caused difficulty. People like to be complimented. Now, at the same time, I do think one of the biggest things that you have to get used to is reading the room is so much more important here than it is in the States. In, I tell people this all the time, but in America, you are expected to defend yourself. You are the most important person to you, and for better or for worse, it is your job to tell people what's wrong, to tell people what you need. That's not a thing here. It's changing slightly, I think, but for the most part, there's a sense that you putting yourself first, even in situations where other people would think it's, it's appropriate to do so, is potentially causing inconvenience on the people around you. And for that reason, I think most people here develop a sense of you have to be able to read the room because somebody's not going to tell you what they're thinking, so you have to be able to intuit what they're thinking. Even now, I've been here for over four years, and even now, I probably won't ever be good at it, but it's, you know, that sense of you have to be a natural at reading the room to be able to get by is, is a point of difficulty. And out of my own curiosity, here in the States, and I'm sure you remember back when you were here, 
there's always these posts on like Twitter and Facebook about like in Japan, they do this, like Uber facts and things like that. Like I've, I've read that it's considered okay to fall asleep at your desk in Japan because that means you were working hard and all those kind of posts and things like that. Are there any sort of rumors that you remember reading about when you were here that you went over there and realized were completely untrue? I would say every single rumor you've heard about Japan in regards to that kind of thing is conditional at best. So I'll use your sleeping at your desk example. That is true, found you know, basically. But at the same time, it's not like you could go into your office at 9 in the morning and by 9.30 you're just sitting there conked out at your desk. <laughs> there's, there's conditional situations to that. And obviously, like, people don't want employees to slack off that's that's true for any country i think but yeah i generally tell people that when it comes to the rumors that you hear about stuff there's probably a kernel of truth into them but you have to remember that at best they're conditional and at worst they are inaccurate because either they are old or because they are a misunderstanding of what's happening again i need to think of a good example to explain what i'm talking about but let me ask you this then. What are some of the rumors that you've heard that are most interesting or you want to know the most about? So that's the one that I heard the most about that I just had assumed had to have been untrue. <laughs> just because I have a hard time wrapping my head around believing everybody is truly that hardworking, that that's the only way they would sleep on the job is if it was necessary. I would say that it depends on the company. It depends on the department. And that still has a certain level of like, age to it i would say so this is this is something interesting to me that i'm often comparing but the japan's current cultural situation or the changes that they are experiencing in many ways are similar to the ones that america experienced 30 or 40 years ago and so that parallel is very interesting to me but you know you hear about the work culture and how bad the work culture is here in many situations and i i think that from a perspective of saying workers' rights need to be seriously considered, yeah, Japan needs to develop some better workers' understanding, some, you know, workers' rights and, you know, change the culture in that specific way. But the reason that you hear about that kind of stuff and about sleeping at your desk and about every Japanese person works until 10 p.m. regardless of what time the office is closed has a lot to do with the idea that has been prominent up until the last i would say 10 years or so that you graduate from college you get a job at a company and you work at that company for the rest of your life you are loyal to the company because the company will provide you with health benefits they will provide you with income and they will make sure that you are clothed and your family is fed and so this this image of the hard-working japanese person comes a lot of, out of that in my opinion, it comes a lot out of the everyone needs to work together for the greater good, which is a big aspect of the culture here. And it's again, it's changing. I can see slow cultural changes that exist because that's what culture is. It's constantly changing and evolving thing. But suffice it to say that the reason that these rumors exist is because you have an older view of Japan that is starting to change or is not quite the same as it is, but you know, there's aspects to it. But these rumors get passed around because that's what people have access to. 
And the, the last thing I'll ask you about before we start digging into language a little bit more is I know there's a very different dating culture in Japan. What are some of the differences you notice, just out of our own curiosity? Say for a couple of points, I think being in a relationship is not largely that different here than it is in America. And again, I'm going to talk primarily from an American perspective because I can't comment from the perspective of any other country. But I think the main thing that kind of threw me off is somebody explained it really well a couple of years ago. But in, in the States, I think that there are three steps when it comes to getting into a relationship. There is the end result, which is you are in a relationship. You are boyfriend and girlfriend or you're a couple or whatever the case may be. And then there's the dating phase where you're intentionally going on dates. You're spending time with this person with the idea of let's get to know each other because we might end up being in a relationship. But there's also like a, a vague, you know, we're hanging out. The talking phase? Yeah, the talking phase. That's a good way of putting it. The, the, we we kind of like each other and we want to spend time, but we don't want to put any labels on it because I'm not sure how you feel and you're not sure how I feel. And that's a real part of the American dating process. That first step is the only part of Japanese dating before being in a relationship, which is the funniest part for me because the what they call the confession culture is such a big deal here. You, What you do is you spend time with somebody as friends and then you confess your feelings and if they reciprocate, you're a couple. It's, you know, there is no, we're dating phase. And so my experience with Mickey was kind of like that, is we were spending time together, we would go do things, just the two of us together, but the idea of putting the word date on it never really occurred to me. And I... Dates exist, obviously, but I think the main difference would be that you jump from the just talking phase into the relationship phase if everything goes smoothly. Interesting. I love that it's called the confession. What is it? The confession moment? The confession culture? Yeah, that's hilarious. I love that. So, Andrew, as we transition into the language part, I'm actually going to tell a story about you. Very unconventional for what we normally do, but I just think it's a funny story. So, you know, we got to go visit you a couple years ago and just got to run around Japan with you. And obviously you were a great tour guide. I was in utter culture shock the whole time, just for those who were wondering at home. It was very hard for me to adjust, but I got there eventually. And it was really cool. But anyway, so obviously we were four white people walking around Japan and you were the expert leading us around. But there was a moment when our mom wasn't feeling super great. And so we were in Osaka, I believe, and we went into a pharmacy to get her some medicine and you know these japanese women see this these four white people obviously american walk into their pharmacy and they you know they're kind of like looking at us like how can you help but andrew goes you go straight to the counter and you start speaking japanese to them and the pharmacist literally screamed because she like did not expect these like white people to walk in this american to speak fluent japanese to her and she was so caught off guard that you spoke Japanese so well that like she literally screamed, which I think is, if nothing else, an amazing resume builder just right there, that your Japanese is so good. It's shocking to the locals. Yeah, I'll be sure to include that in my next job hunting uh, resume. If you don't know how to word it, just put me on your resume. They can call me unless they don't speak English, in which case you would then have to translate for me, which also could be helpful, I guess, you know? Yeah, no, that's how you get a job. Just give all English-speaking references, offer to translate, and then say whatever you want about yourself. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll be sure to keep that in mind. 
And maybe don't show them this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Although, if they don't speak English, it doesn't really matter. Okay, so, Andrew, I would love, I know this is like putting you on the spot, but would you just give us like a conversation in Japanese of, you can do, I guess, just one side of a greeting and then like a how's your day and like explain what you do for a living in Japanese. Could you get, give us that? Do you want me to just introduce myself in Japanese? Yeah, totally. Okay. はじめましてえ、アンドリュー・ガリソンと言います。え、私はアメリカ生まれで、えっと、大学を卒業してから日本に引っ越しました。え、ほぼ3年間ぐらいえっと、英語の先生みたいな仕事に入りましたけれども、
I'm learning Japanese right now, even as I can consider myself fluent, because there's more to know. I cannot speak at the same level as a native speaker at my age, because they have 20 years on me, you know? And I don't want to stop learning. There's so much else to learn. Now, I'm not going to turn into somebody who, you know, has more Japanese knowledge than the average native speaker. I don't have the time or the energy to do that. But at the same time, there's still room to grow in English, in Japanese, in any other language. And I think that finding that, I find that fascinating and I want to keep doing that. So even if it's not Japanese, I'd like to continue doing it in another language as well. So obviously... Objectively, you are fluent in Japanese. I feel like it's hard to argue that. I know that you, being a humble person, might say, oh, I don't know, whatever. But would would you say you are fluent? And at what point do you think you felt that way? I'm going to say that I do consider myself fluent because I spend more of my time speaking in Japanese than I speak in English these days. If I weren't fluent, I, could, I couldn't do that. I still think I have a long way to go with the language. I still have so much to learn you know, I don't consider that a bad thing. I think that's a good thing. In terms of when I say I would hit fluency, it probably would have been about two years into being here in the country. There's a specific point where I realized that hearing Japanese did not sound like gobbledygook anymore. And that sounds strange to say, but there's a specific point. If you listen to your native language, it is impossible to not recognize it. Even if you don't understand a word that's being said, you know it's English. You're familiar with that. And to me, my fluency in Japanese was, when I recognized that fact, was when I could hear Japanese, and even if I didn't understand what was being said, my brain could recognize that it was Japanese and was familiar with that process. And I don't, I can't tell you when exactly that happened. It wasn't a one day I couldn't do it and one day I could. It was obviously a step-by-step process. But I do think fluency is directly connected to how familiar you are with a language in terms of subconscious thinking, or rather, you know, your subconscious reaction to that language. And you mentioned, obviously, learning three, four total languages and and starting another. And you mentioned that you've got a textbook set aside for learning another language. Obviously, you do Japanese and English on a more professional level than the average person who's looking to become bilingual. Do you still think textbooks are the best place to start? Or maybe would you recommend something like Rosetta Stone or Duolingo? Where should someone start with Japanese or any second language rather? So I will say that providing yourself a sense of structure is invaluable. I think a lot of people, they get into the idea that all they have to do is pick up some flashcards and start flipping through those flashcards. And before they know it, they'll be fluent. But the fact of the matter is, is that with any skill, not just learning a language, you need sense of structure to begin with because of the just scope of information that's available you don't you can learn how to draw for example by sitting down and just drawing circles all day long and that'll obviously develop some skill and there are obviously a lot of people who learn how to draw over years just by doing it over and over again but in my opinion developing any kind of skill let alone learning a language it's much easier if you gain knowledge from somebody who's more experienced than you and that can be a classroom that can be textbooks that can be rosetta stone i'm a little bit hesitant to say use duolingo by itself and we can get into that but i will say that regardless of how you plan to study because self-study is a completely valid form of studying 
you need to provide yourself with a path with some kind of structure. And I think the easiest way to do that is to either take a class or buy a textbook and go through the textbook as it's written. So when you were, you know, when you were in college, two of your current best friends you met in college are Japanese. How was meeting them impactful for even learning language before you even moved to Japan? Again, it would definitely connect back to that exposure. I'm going to highly recommend to anyone who wants to learn a language, you need to be get that exposure. You need to get that exposure one way or another. Now, grant you, the entire time that we were in America together, I could not understand a word they were saying because they were speaking so quickly and they spoke to each other in a local dialect. Nonetheless, interacting with an actual speaker in the language you want to learn is going to expose you to speech patterns, it's going to expose you to grammar that you're not familiar with, and it's going to be a much more concentrated way to gain vocabulary. And of course, it'll whet your appetite for the culture and the the society and all of the aspects of the country that speaks that language. So that's a good experience as well, in my opinion, but specifically in terms of language learning, like making a friend with a native speaker is a really good way to dive headfirst into what actually using that language looks like. And so on that note, so I would consider myself to be an amateur linguist because of that B I got in that one class in college. So when, when you start learning a language, I think they tend to present you with words, you know, perro is dog, you know, casa is house, the Spanish for our, our listeners at home. Your, your accent is perfect. Thank you. Way. Appreciate it. Would you recommend just starting by learning how to pronounce words, or would you even say there are there's a better way to get started? Are you talking specifically about how important pronunciation is, or? I'm asking, would you want to start, like if you were teaching someone, would you start by just giving them words to practice learning what they mean and how to pronounce them? Or would you start with, hey, you know, here's kanji and here's what the sounds are like? Or how would you recommend, what would you recommend is the most important thing to start with? See, that's something that I would say depends on the language you're learning and what you want to use the language for. In most cases, if you are a native English speaker and you want to learn Japanese, I'm going to say prioritize speaking and listening first, because reading and writing is just, it's a battle. And there are a lot of people who who can't write complex kanji, even as native speakers, because of computers and all that. But that's Japanese. My general advice, if you are self-studying, my general advice is to approach learning the language from two different perspectives. One, learn things that you're already interested in. So let's say you like racing. Learn how to talk about racing in the language you're learning. And obviously, like, you have to pace yourself. And if you're just starting out, you need to really learn the basics, which is why I so highly recommend at least getting a textbook. But if you learn through a topic that you're already interested in, that's going to provide you with motivation that you wouldn't have otherwise. And the other thing is, the second point is, learn things that you think that you can use quickly. This is a bit of a specific example for Japanese, but there are a lot of people who go out there, and because there are a lot of people who go out there, and because of how popular anime is, they go, I'm just going to watch anime and learn through that. And the problem with that is, one, you're learning a very specific area of Japanese that's not going to be very useful, for example, if you want to go to the doctor. What if you want to start a fight? Yeah. <laughs> then it's perfect. You're, you're, it's exactly what you need. 
but it's also you're starting at a level that's not useful for beginners just straight out of the gate obviously there's listening practice and there's some input that you can get from things like that but you need to be able to use what you're learning quickly and so to me that's why starting at a low level and working your way up is as important as it is and that sounds obvious because learning is you know you start at the bottom and you work your way up but i think that a lot of people get hooked on more complex things about a language that they're learning but that in the end turns out to be more frustrating than anything else so i have friends who wanted to learn actually specifically japanese like i have a friend who kind of did what you did and he he's my he minored in college but he would watch a lot of anime or like japanese shows even sometimes with subtitles to help learn the language do you think that is helpful at all would you say just it is not uh, all-encompassing or would you say you're probably not going to really learn that much by doing that I will say that it is a useful tool if you are using it with other forms of study. I think it depends on how good you are at the language to begin with. And I think that it's going to be slow if that's your main source of practice. And again, listening is a part of language learning. You have to learn how to listen effectively. So doing things like that is very useful. But if that's the main thing that you're doing, Again, I think your vocabulary is going to be stunted. You're not going to get everything you need to be able to function properly if you want to use the language in a natural context. And you're also going to learn speaking styles that don't really get used in everyday situations. This is my own personal term, but I like to call things like this media language. Media language, as I define it, is language that is used specifically to give a certain atmosphere and that is most often used in television shows and movies as well as you know reality tv and there's a specific reason for that obviously most media that a country produces is directed at its native speaking local audience american television shows and movies even as they're consumed all over the world are made for americans primarily and so you don't need to worry about using language that is more than anything about providing information because most people are already good enough at doing that, at getting that information. And so instead what you do is you use language that conveys a certain emotion or gives the character a certain feel to them. And that's fine. That's normal. Japan does that as well all the time. But the problem is, is if you're learning how to speak through that, you're speaking patterns are going to be very strange. There's a commercial over here that I laugh at every time it comes on, but there's a Japanese guy and a foreign woman at an amusement park. And he suddenly turns to her and goes, freeze, don't move. I'll be back. And then he goes to the restroom. <laughs> and it's like, that's exactly what that problem is, is because he got that from television. It, it's about learning English. So it's an intentional commercial, but the exact problem that's being displayed here is that you're learning a type of speaking that is perfectly fine. It makes sense. It just doesn't work in the context because it's for a completely different media-based context. So in short, I would say if you are at a level at which you have a foundation and you can build on top of that by watching media, consuming media from that country or in that language, do it. But if that's your main interaction with a language, you're going to experience more problems than you're going to gain out of it. Interesting. 
So I remember, Andrew, before you were in college, you uh, had a journal when you were in high school of writing down kanji and just learning things like that. And you would write down terms. I don't exactly remember all of it, but I remember you, you had that and you used it a lot. Probably you probably say you didn't use it enough, but I remember it was more full than most journals I've ever had. So what were some of the resources you even started with in that process? Where did you go specifically? So when I did that self-studying in high school, I had a beginner's Japanese booklet CD combination. You know, that was basic, like, you're a business person going over to Japan and you need to be able to know how to order sushi, so let's help you out, I think. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't very big. You're right, I didn't use it as much as I think I should have, but at the end of the day, it didn't really matter. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I might sound like a broken record, but... It, you know, that having something to guide you through the process and give you specific things to learn, like a textbook, was really useful for me. And in terms of learning, we touched on it a little bit earlier, when learning a second language, do you think it's more important to learn the technical structure very early on? Or would you put more of an emphasis on learning more conversationally and being able to communicate with somebody and then learning the structure and the technicalities later? I honestly think you do both of those at the same time. I don't think it's a one or the other type of situation. I will say it is important to be able to learn correct grammar, even if the correct grammar is not commonly used by native speakers, mostly because if you build off of a mistake it becomes harder to understand when that mistake is not used and things that are related to that mistake. But at the same time, like this, the Japanese I speak conversationally, oftentimes it's not grammatically correct. And part of that is because I make grammar mistakes. I'm a second language speaker. I'm not a native speaker. But part of that is because colloquially it feels more familiar to use what is used commonly rather than to be, well, for lack of a better term, a stick in the mud about grammar. But I think that if you are learning effectively, the technicality and the structure of language comes alongside the conversationality. It's, it's not possible, in my opinion, to learn one and not learn the other. Something you said made me think of a question. Do you have any stories about where you thought you were saying the right thing or you didn't exactly know what you're saying? It turns out what you were saying was like totally ridiculous or not even close to what you meant? More times than I can count, most likely. I think the best way to answer that question is a lot of people are aware that Japanese has a lot of English words in it. And that has a lot to do with the presence of American culture in Japan after World War II. What's funny about those words, though, is that oftentimes they don't mean what they mean in English, or they mean the opposite of what they mean in English. And the best example I can come up with is the word tension in Japanese. Which, you hear that and you think, oh, tension. It's, it's the same thing. But the funny thing is, is that when you're referring to a group setting in an atmosphere, in English, tension means negativity. If there's a lot of tension in the air, if you say that in English, it's like, whoa, what's going on here? You know, somebody's about to blow up. But it's the exact opposite in Japanese. Tension is a good thing. And so they'll often say, tension ga agaru, which means... Tension is rising, but it means people are excited and having a good time. And I didn't know that. <laughs> That's funny. I didn't know that for several years. And so I would go out with friends and we would have fun time and good things. And at the end of it, somebody would be like, oh, tension ga agatte ta ne. And I would freak out because I'm like, did something happen? What's going on? <laughs> That's really funny. 
Is that when you get to flex on them and tell them they're using a word wrong? <laughs> People ask me all the time, actually. There's a there's a term for this in Japanese. They call it wase eigo, which which if you translate it directly, translates to English made in Japan. And it's one of these things that the word is English. If you say the word, it sounds exactly like it does in English with, you know, a Japanese accent because it's being spoken in Japanese. But the, the meaning is completely different. So there's another phrase that actually recently happened to me in, uh, in work that somebody was talking to me and she said, all right, I need you to make this plus alpha. And I went, what's plus alpha? Is that like some company that we have to contact? And she looks at me and she goes, no, 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 just make it plus with, you know, make it plus alpha. And I, I just stared at her blankly and I went, I don't, I don't know what that means. And it's funny because it's English and you would think that I would understand, but in the context, I had no idea what she was talking about. And what it turns out is plus alpha means and something more. So we have this kind of, we have the same phrase in English. It's just, you know, different wording, but it's do this and something more. It's, you can't really put a finger on what you want to add, but you have a little extra to make it better than the other thing. And that's plus alpha in Japanese, but we don't say plus alpha in English at all. You know, that's that's one of those hurdles that you're hearing your native language, but you have no idea what's being said because the context is completely different or you've never heard that phrasing before. So that happens fairly commonly. How forgiving would you say is Japan in general with your language and your, you know, usage of it? As in my Japanese or... Yeah, how how forgiving are the people of like, oh, we get that, you know, he's not going to get everything right all the time. So there's a running gag here that if you can introduce yourself in Japanese, most people will think you're fluent. Which is not entirely true, but it's a funny joke to tell people. So I have read that to this day, and this extends way back from medieval Japan, that the image of Japanese is that it's so hard for foreigners to be able to pick up that any evidence that a foreigner could speak Japanese is met with excitement. And to be fair, there's some, there's, I kind of understand where they're coming from when they say that if you think about historically, Japan was isolated, it cut itself off from the rest of the world for over 250 years. And so then you have foreigners are coming in who could speak your language it would be surprising but for whatever particular reason that has continued on into the modern era to a certain extent especially if you go into the countryside and i just find that it doesn't matter how good at japanese you actually are if you give an effort to speak japanese most people will greet you with welcome arms because they're just happy that you're speaking their native language that's always been my perception of it too as long as you're trying to speak their language to them that they immediately become more understanding. I went to Mexico recently and I took a lot of Spanish, but I'm not going to pretend even for one second that I'm anywhere close to fluent, but I was trying to like, you know, dig into my memory and remember some of the Spanish and have some very basic conversations. And when I was there, everybody was like, anytime I would try to speak Spanish, they would like light up and they'd start speaking a lot of Spanish to me. And I'd have to let them know that I have no idea what they're saying. And then they would immediately like smile and laugh and they're like, Oh, keep trying. It's basically the, the sentiment that I always got. Yeah. I would, I think in America as well, if you run into somebody who's trying their hardest to speak English, you're not going to be like, you're getting the grammar wrong. <laughs> I feel like most people in this world are going to be very open to someone speaking a language that they're not super comfortable with, but they're nonetheless trying. And it's the same with Japan. I, I think that 
most Japanese people are very happy to run into people from other countries who want to speak Japanese. So, uh, Andrew, I just am also curious because this is a question I get asked a lot when I talk about you and talk about, you know, just your life and all the cool stuff you've done. Which it sounds like he does a lot. Right. I do. Honestly, I, I will tell you, people ask about family and I'm like, they're like, oh, is your family around here? And I'm like, my parents are, but my brother lives in Japan and they're like, it's time, time to ask a lot of questions. What was it like for you moving to Japan? Kind of like pack a suitcase and it wins. Yeah, it really was just kind of like pack a suitcase and go, huh? I will say that the first job that I took as an assistant English teacher was very guided and they had all of the routines in place. And so it felt less like moving and more like going on an extended vacation for a while. But I think that the first six months were very much just, wow, I'm living abroad. Part of it was, wow, I'm living in Japan. But at the same time, I feel like I would have had the same emotion behind it living anywhere else in the world. It's just, oh my goodness, this is not my home country. This is not my home state. This is a completely different place. And every morning I'm newly reminded of that fact. And then you start realizing that you still have to pay your bills and do the laundry and live life. And it doesn't change just because you're living in a different place. And that's not a bad thing. I think that's a normal realization for anyone who lives abroad over an extended period of time. But I can't really comment too much on the moving a bunch of cardboard boxes over a country because I don't have that experience myself personally. But it was less of like, all right, time to start my new, the new era of my life and more, oh my goodness, look at this new place with all of these different sensory experiences and this these aspects that I have no idea how to process correctly, which lasted until it didn't. And now I'm just kind of like, yeah, this is, this is life. And how long do you think it took you to really adjust? Personally, I don't think it took too long to adjust to living in Japan, but I don't consider that to be a normal, I'm not the barometer by which people should judge how quickly they can get used to living in a foreign country because I thrive off of new experiences. That's what I find most invigorating about living life is new experiences. And I think for most people, it's going to take a bit to get used to living in a foreign country. Obviously, there's some excitement that comes with that, but there's also some difficulties that come with living in a foreign country. Homesickness is absolutely guaranteed. I think the majority of people will experience homesickness at some point, regardless of how you may feel about your home or why you decided to move to a foreign country, at some point you're going to miss aspects of your home culture. And I think at a particular level, because you weren't raised in the culture, there are going to be aspects that you just aren't ever going to understand. And that doesn't mean that you can't successfully live and thrive in a foreign country, but I think that, you know, I was raised in America. I'm never going to be able to stop thinking completely like an American. I can obviously change my perspective a little bit to incorporate what I've learned in my time in Japan, but you know, that idea of becoming full Japanese or full anything for that matter, I just don't think that's possible. You would obviously get a certain degree to that level, but 100% is not something I think is possible. Andrew, we're going to have to start wrapping up here in a little bit and, and talk about some action steps, but you mentioned earlier that you had some issues with Duolingo as an exclusive learning tool. 
I feel like that's probably where most people would start if they decided they wanted to learn a second language, just because it's so simple to download an app on your phone and get started right there. And it's become very popular. What are your issues with it? What are your recommendations if somebody is dead set on using it? Tell us more about your opinions on Duolingo. All right, before Duolingo decides to contact me and sue me for libel, I will say if you want to download Duolingo, do it. Those kind of applications are great because they are an immediate interaction with the language you want to learn, and they provide the structure that I've been talking about. The reason that I'm less than willing to recommend apps like Duolingo by themselves is because you don't have the ability to branch out in other directions you are learning what Duolingo has for you. And as you progress, you unlock more and more, and that's that's great. But Duolingo by itself is very slow, and it will not provide you with the hands-on experience that I think you need to be able to really make the language your own. If you are a beginner at a language, I would say use Duolingo with a textbook. And the reason for that is, is because the textbook will explain grammatical vocabulary and other aspects that Duolingo will not. If you are an intermediate, I would say use Duolingo along with direct interaction with a native speaker. And the reason for that is, is because Duolingo is not going to give you the skills you need to be able to use the language in the moment. Again, Duolingo is set phrases. And set phrases are fine, but if that's all you ever do, what happens when the set phrase doesn't work? So the convenience of apps like Duolingo, I think, is great. And I think that adding that to your your tool belt is a really good idea. But again, the whole, I want to learn a language, so I'm going to use just this is not a good idea because just this can only do so much for you. And so in general, my advice is get the structure from textbooks or classes, but try to gain experience and learning from multiple different sources so that you grow that foundation and you, you develop your skills in a much wider range. And is there any other app besides Duolingo that you might recommend more or that's that's similar that you have a preference towards or just may work better for somebody, anything like that? I would say Duolingo is good if what you really want to be able to do is learn how to learn vocabulary and learn how to put that vocabulary into sentences. So that's great. My experience has generally been if you want to focus on vocabulary exclusively, look up flashcard apps. Flashcard apps are great because you usually have more flexibility and you can study the vocabulary that you want to. The other thing, there are several apps out there that allow you to speak with native speakers in different languages. If you want to interact with native speakers, there's an app called HelloTalk, which is really good for that kind of natural experience. And again, all these apps do different things. So it's not like you should use this app and not this app, but it's like, what do you want out of your language studying? If you want hands-on experience, go with HelloTalk. If you want the vocabulary in set phrases that's really useful for beginners, go with Duolingo. If you want a wider range of vocabulary and other aspects, go with flashcard apps. But more than anything, it's don't expect one thing to do everything in terms of your language learning. Does HelloTalk provide questions? What's your name? What's your birthday? Uh, what's your social security number? Mother's maiden name? Things like that? I don't think it goes that far personally, but I do think you have to fill out a profile because you are talking with people. Is this more of like a chat roulette with foreign speakers or is it a little more structured than that? You, I'm going to be honest. It's been a while since I've used it. What I think you do is you 
jump in, you request the language that you want to practice, and then you get a list of people who are willing to get into a chat and practice that language with you. And you can look at people's profiles and you can say, okay, this person looks good. I'll talk with them. And it'll have information on what languages they speak, what languages they're learning, where they're from, etc. And so it, it's not as vague as something like chat roulette would be, but it, it is very much like a, you take initiative and start up conversations with people. And then is there any other uh, advice you would give to someone who's just getting started learning language or who wants to start learning language soon? It might sound cliched, but I would say go for it. Just start learning. Figure out how you want to learn, obviously, and everything that I've been talking about, structure and all that. But the best piece of advice I ever got about language learning was from the college professor who recommended me to take up that English teaching job. And that is, is that learning a language is like filling up a glass of water droplet by droplet. And that, you know, it takes a long time one after the other and you're just sitting there watching it and it's like is this ever going to get full you know what's but you keep at it you keep putting droplets in and before you know it the cup is overflowing so in short all that means is learning a language takes time and it takes steps so the best thing that you can do is get started and be consistent because you're not going to get to fluent in three months it's just not going to happen so the best thing that you can do for yourself is just know that it's going to take time but that if you're willing to be consistent and you're willing to have fun doing it, that you'll hit that level that you want to hit before you know it. And if somebody does want to learn a second language, what is, in your opinion, the most essential step one? The most essential step one, in my opinion, is knowing what you want to do with that language. I actually have a blog, which I just recently started, where I talk a little bit about this. But giving yourself a goal with your language gives you a source of motivation that makes it much easier to get through the difficult parts of learning the language. If you're just trying to learn a language for its own sake, when it gets difficult, you don't have any reason to keep going. It gets frustrating and you quit. But if you say to yourself, I want to be able to do this, then that goal makes it much easier to measure your progress. It makes it much easier to keep going when it feels frustrating. And it also gives you something to focus on as you start learning and picking vocabulary and other things like that. And whether that be, I want to live in a foreign country, I want to be able to consume the media of that country, I want to be able to visit that country and be able to survive on my own as a tourist, any goal is fine at all. It's just having that source of motivation is one of the best things that you can do for yourself, in my opinion. It's really good. It's good advice. I feel like, you know, whenever we ask, ask our first steps, they're never quite where I think they're going to be, which is probably why I have to talk to experts because <laughs> if the first step was something I thought it would be, I'd probably be an expert by now. But yeah, Andrew, we're about out of time. So I just appreciate you coming on and just hanging out with us talking. Always good to hear your voice. For those of you who are listening at home, our voices may sound the same, but he's the one that sounds smart. He's also the one that spoke Japanese earlier. That's right. <laughs> uh, but yes, I know this is going to be one of our most anticipated episodes because, uh, Mom's already texted asking when it's coming out. So uh, <laughs> she texted me middle of the podcast. But yeah, love you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for hanging out. All right, though, no problem. I had a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, any suggestions for future episodes, or would like to be an expert on our show, please email us at 101guide to life at gmail.com or send us a voice recording through Anchor.